Welcome to a mathematical basis for reality. Bruce, I think you should tell them that Physical Truth is a book on mathematics and philosophy, and that it's a good story. <clears throat> so what is this amazing Einstein field equation that you're always going on about? Okay, the Einstein field equation, uh, the Einstein field equation is um, a description of empty space. It's like a description of the properties and behavior of empty space. We talked about Schrodinger's equation. Schrodinger's equation is a description, if you like, of empty space within a region that's really, really small. Okay? So we can't actually go any smaller than that, but the, the, the size is the size of a hydrogen atom. Outside of the size of a hydrogen atom happens to be an empty space between a small size out to infinity. And the Einstein field includes two equations, two theories uh, of physics that describes the area. One is gravity and the other electromagnetism. Electromagnetism is covered by Maxwell's equations, the first one to hit upon it and describes electric charges, magnetic fields, uh, which extend out to an, inf uh, an infinite uh, uh, region, uh, which later on we found out, well, it doesn't apply to something that's incredibly small because we can't measure in that area. But from the very small out to infinity, Maxwell's equations work with Maxwell in the middle of the 1800s. Then later, and the other was Newton talking about gravity. Newton's gravity is action at a distance. So you're sitting over there, I'm sitting over here, and I'm like, uh, according to Newton, there is an instantaneous effect on you from gravitational fields. In other words, um, the action at a distance means the time delay isn't taken into consideration, and for all intents and purposes, we say the speed of light is infinite. So the, the speed of gravitational interactions is infinite. Okay, But it takes time, really, for gravity and gravitational changes to affect something, which isn't taken into account in Newton. There are a few things that caused a problem with this. One of them was the precession of Mercury's orbit, okay, which um, no one could explain. Uh, that's just one thing uh, uh, that was explained by Einstein. When Einstein came forward, and if you read his paper, and it's unbelievable how many people talk about general relativity and Einstein's theory, uh, which uh, uh, is known as, which we call as a theory, uh, or general relativity, which uh, doesn't recognize the fact that what Einstein actually did was he took a theory of gravity and a theory of electromagnetism, that both electromagnetism and gravity describe the behaviors of empty space. So empty space is described by both Maxwell's equations, a theory of gravity, and what Einstein did was he combined both Maxwell's equations and a theory of gravity into one theory known as the general theory. That's why it's known as the general theory of relativity and that basically we get rid of this idea, well, yeah, we, we 
uh, try and explain things like forces and things like that within fields, like electric field or gravitational field, are described as stresses and strains along, uh, if you like, the field lines or stresses and strains, which are described by a coordinate system. And this coordinate system basically uses the Pythagorean theory instead of in three-dimensional space, also brings in time, which is where Minkowski, who was uh, just before Einstein, it was also new Einstein and so forth, um, Minkowski described what's called a Minkowski space, which is very simply a four-dimensional space which uses time x, y, and z, in which the speed of light is considered as a constant. So the theory, general theory of relativity, is not a theory of physics. It is not a physical theory. It's a mathematical derivation. It's the straight mathematics that if we take basically the Pythagorean theorem, which is known as an L2 measure or an L2 norm um, in a Lebesgue measure, um, that's, uh, it's an LP space, oh, what do they call it? Ah, oh, come to me, sorry, I'm, I'm more. Uh, <coughs> of my freaking Alzheimer's coming to me. Um, it's a Lebesgue measure, thank you. It's an L2 measure, uh, or an L2 norm, in a four-dimensional Minkowski space. That is the measure that basically forms what's known as a metric, and metrics are dealt with like the Pythagorean theorem, or if you like, the R squared equals dx squared plus dy squared. Uh, and if you were in a curved space, you have to add a particular term because the curvature of space, because you're dealing on a curved surface, which Ramon pointed out, and this particular curvature is described by the Christoffel and the Christoffel symbol, which you toss on to the end of your metric and was used in the metric um, to be able to describe the curved space. Like, how does it deviate from being a flat space? On a flat space, we have certain types of equations. But then, because the speed of light is constant, we have to adjust the space to be curved, so the ruler's curved, and the clocks alter and change because of the curvature of the space. In that case, it describes the Christoffel, which is now a non-zero item, and, uh, and that's what we mean by the curvature of space. But usually, just think of it as the ruler's bent, because it's easier, uh, but we don't have a four-dimensional ruler. The four-dimensional ruler is called the metric, and the metric is described by the Pythagorean theorem in this four-dimensional space. Uh, and it's just a four-dimensional space where time uh, is considered as imaginary and space is considered as real. That way it works out because we measure time in the past and we measure space outwardly. So Minkowski, with the genius of Minkowski, um, presents space using that particular coordinate system. Other people say that uh, the laws, uh, uh, Einstein said that the laws of physics were unalterable. No, he didn't say that. Einstein said that just because you change the coordinate system doesn't mean you change the laws of physics. All right. Uh, another point. Wait, how is that different? Positive. Whoa. How oh. is that different from people saying, so how is that different from people saying that the universe, that it's, that it's not alterable? Okay. How is what you said different? The only law we're talking about really is the constancy of, of the speed of light. And various other things, taking a look at gravitational attraction and so on, as being laws of physics. And I'll describe laws of physics because there's a, a, one very brilliant writer who's come up with a, a very good book called Lost in the Math, um, which I hope to read soon, and it talks about 
uh, how the crisis in physics and how physics become an absolute mess because people are just simply looking in the wrong place. And one of the things that was said is there are no laws of physics um, because we can't. There's no law in physics that says we drop. Um, let's say a pen above a desk and we, we just release the pen that it will actually fall all times, okay? We sometimes call that the law of gravity and so on, but really what's happened is we've transferred it, we've modeled it from a, a physical situation into uh, a mathematical description, what we call a mathematical model, which may or may not be valid. We just transfer it into a mathematical model because in mathematics, we can then, if you like, find a solution. Physics can't find a solution. Physical laws won't give you a solution, but mathematics does. So we have a mathematical description and we have the problem, what happens if you release the pen? And we then solve this and we reach um, an answer to a mathematical question. Then we try modeling it back into the physical world and try interpreting that mathematical solution back into the physical world. If we are unbelievably lucky, and really is from nothing other than luck, the mathematics will predict accurately what happens to the pen if we release it. And if we release the pen, it strikes the desk, accelerating downward at 9.87 meters per second squared, etc. We can time it, we can do all sorts of experiments and so forth and say, ooh, we now understand gravity as some sort of physical law of gravity. No, it's a mathematics that described it and says mathematically, we describe that uh, like with gravitational potential changing from height down to whichever and the, gra and, and the gravitational potential energy is equal to the kinetic energy of the pen as it strikes, etc. We solve these mathematical uh, uh, descriptions, this mathematical equation, it's just algebra, and you solve the thing and it tells how long does it take for the pen to fall and how fast it's traveling when it hits the surface of the desk. That is described by the mathematics, not by any sort of physical law that says that that's etc. And one of the things I often, this is called applied mathematics, and I always say, people talk about, you know, the, the consequence of the mathematics and so forth. I say, look, we are describing applied mathematics here. It has absolutely nothing to do with reality. And the miracle is that when we find this mathematical model, and we solve it. And if we are incredibly, incredibly lucky, it actually predicts what will happen in the physical world. That is nothing short of an absolute freaking miracle. Nothing says that that should be happening, but it does over and over and over again. So when we say we have made a physical theory or we have a physical law, it means we have a mathematical solution that always predicts the right answer. It always gives you the same answer according to observation, but that is nothing short of a miracle. With Newton, the precession of the orbit of Mercury could not properly be described over and over and over. Okay, That because Newton did not take into account, if you like, time delays, uh, which if we do it properly, says no, it's in a space more curved closer to the sun than farther from the sun, so the clocks are deviating from one way to another and so forth, and everything all fits together and therefore the orbit precesses, and Einstein used his mathematical solution 
on uh, the description of the interaction between the Sun and Mercury according to general relativity and showed very definitely this is the precession of the order of, of the orbit of, of Mercury and it's absolutely bang on the money. Okay. Secondly, there's been the curvature of light through a, through a, a gravitational field that has also been on the money. And very recently, there was this uh, elevator thing where they're talking about science was watching an elevator for 14 years to see if, you know, uh, basically they had an atomic clock on it, it ran for 14 years, and they were basically comparing, this is really, really important, uh, they were comparing, if you like, accelerating and uh, if you like the uh, general relativity with accelerating reference frames versus uh, a reference frame in a gravitational field and found they were equal, okay, which is called uh, the principle of equivalence. So what it is, is we're sitting in a box and uh, there's a chain on the top of the box and that chain's being yarded and we're being pulled upwardly, accelerating upwardly at 9.8 meters per second squared, or we're just sitting here in the kitchen at a kitchen table, and we're feeling the gravitational pull of the Earth, and if we drop something, it's going to fall at 9.87 meters per second squared. There's absolutely no difference. This is called equivalence. So an accelerating reference frame is exactly the same as a gravitational field. That is the principle of equivalence. So... <laughs> Getting grand total to this, g mu nu is the description, if you like, of the Pythagorean theorem in a four-dimensional Minkowski space. It's an L2 measure in a four-dimensional Minkowski space. That describes whether the ruler is straight, curved, or whatever. That describes the rulers and clocks, the behaviors of the rulers and clocks. That's equal to, if you like, a material stress-energy tensor that describes the stresses, strains, and shears on the field lines or in the coordinate system. Okay, plus uh, Faraday tensors that are put together that describe also uh, uh, shears, stresses, and strains within uh, within space because of electric and magnetic fields. Um, so basically, it's gravity plus magnetism equals the curvature of space. Is, is in very loose terms. What it means is even in classical terms, we go down to classical terms. What Newton said. Well, you have two types of mass, if we think of mass as material matter. One mass is the mass of the gravitational field that will create a gravitational field. So the Earth has mass, and that is what's creating this gravitational field, and that's called the gravitational mass of the Earth. But the Earth is also going around the Sun, orbit around the Sun, and stuff like that, due to its momentum and inertial. That's called its inertial mass. So there's a difference between its inertial mass and its gravitational mass, which is zero. In other words, it's the same mass. And this has never been explained. It's not been explained that the inertial mass and the gravitational mass are exactly the same. Okay, so in effect, this elevator experiment is trying to measure the difference between inertial mass and gravitational mass. There is no difference. They've also measured it in other ways to about 20 orders of magnitude and so forth. Bang on the money. The inertial mass is equal to the gravitational mass. Was that the result that they got from the elevator? That's one of the results from the elevator that we got. What they're saying is a cosmological constant is equal to zero. It's a cosmological constant, which everyone's talking about the Big Bang and weird stuff. You know, The cosmological constant, which Einstein said was his greatest mistake, um, the cosmological constant is a measure of the difference between inertial mass and gravitational mass. It's also a, a difference between, let's say, an accelerating reference frame 
and a gravitational field. Being in a gravitational field and being in, a, in an accelerating reference frame are the same thing. They're equivalent. That's a principle of equivalence, which is also this inertial field versus gravitational field in Newtonian terms. Okay, means pretty well the same thing. All right. Now that's what the field equations means. There's no extra term on that. There's no cosmo the cosmological constant is zero. There's no extra term that's added onto it. So it's either uh, electric charge or it's material that are creating the curvature of space and time. That's the general theory of relativity right there. Well, what is his biggest mistake? His biggest mistake was that in 1916, there was an astronomer somewhere in Europe that could not fit uh, general relativity to uh, could not fit general relativity to the night sky over Europe. So they're looking at the night sky over Europe. They don't know there are galaxies yet. Galaxies weren't really known about until 1922, called the Great Debate. But that's 10 years, almost 10 years ago. So anyway, uh, six years ago. Okay, so in, in 1915, all they have is the night sky over Europe, but the night sky that they can see. Nobody knows about galaxies. Nobody has any idea how big the universe is. So this um, astronomer, for some lame and insane reason, criticized Einstein saying that, well, it doesn't fit the night sky over Europe. So how can we do this? It doesn't fit like observation. Einstein, unfortunately, was quite browbeaten most of his life, etc., by um, people without much integrity. Like at the University of Zurich, a professor bragged that he had failed Einstein because just to, you know, because he thought Einstein was too big for his britches and stuff like that. So he deliberately, you know, really created a, a major uh, hardship in Einstein's life uh, because of that. And it's probably because of that he couldn't go out and get a job at universities and stuff like that. So he worked for the Swiss Patent Office. And until, it was actually Max Planck that discovered him with the four great papers that he wrote in 1904, winning his first Nobel Prize. Uh, then in 1915, he won his second Nobel Prize, but that time was for general relativity. Then he was actually criticized by um, someone who knew no idea of cosmology or the large-scale structure of the universe and said, well, this can't be because there, you know, it doesn't fit this thing. And it's actually Poisson's equation that um, Einstein brought up to try and solve this problem, to try and make it fit. And he, he then said, well, Poisson's equation would indicate that maybe space is expanding, like on the surface of a balloon. He, he talks about this in his 1916 paper. And he adds a constant on the end of the general of, of the field equations, uh, which is basically uh, g mu nu, little g mu nu, uh, times capital lambda. The capital lambda is known as the cosmological constant. And we can say we put that there for completeness. But basically, this capital lambda is equal to zero. It, the universe is not expanding. Um, and later on, Einstein said that this was his greatest mistake. Um, George Gamow overheard, apparently so the story goes, overheard Einstein saying that this was his greatest mistake and ran out said the universe is expanding and won the Nobel Prize for predicting the Big Bang and other things like that. Um, so that's sort of the story behind it, but that's his biggest mistake. He just stuck to his guns and says, no, there's no magic in there. Uh, uh, an accelerating reference frame is identical to a gravitational field. There's no difference. 
and inertial mass is of course equal to gravitational mass and really it explains why gravitational mass and inertial mass are the same thing because gravitational field and accelerating field are both just curving the space-time around you. It, it's a, you know, that's why you feel forces and other things like that. When you accelerate in a car, you're feeling these forces pushing you back and things like that because you bent space-time. It's no longer in a Galilean frame. You're no longer going in with a constant speed and coasting along, etc. That's that's why, okay, and it's fairly obvious. And so anyway, that's the story of Einstein's greatest mistake. Um, people then criticized this idea of a non-expanding universe by saying, well, then it's steady state. And this comes into what's known as the fallacy of the excluded middle. So they're saying, well, if there wasn't a Big Bang, then you must believe in a steady state. No, the universe is not in a steady state. The universe is evolving. It is infinite. It is eternal. And it has been evolving forever and shall continue to evolve forever. It is changing. It is dynamic. Things are happening within the universe that we're just barely beginning to discover. But the two tools we have, the two wonderful rulers we have, the building blocks we have, happens to be Schrodinger's equation and the Einstein field equations. And one of the things I've shown is that the boundary condition of Schrodinger's equation is also equal to the boundary conditions of Maxwell's equations and Einstein's field equations, which are really combined in the same thing. So the whole thing creates one beautiful, elegant set of mathematical equations, differential equations, that describe the behavior of empty space and the particles that exist within that empty space. You have said many times that people don't understand Einstein's relativity, general relativity. A lot of people don't understand general relativity. Am I understanding you correctly? I yeah, yeah. a lot of people that. haven't read Einstein's paper. They have not taken pencil and paper and worked out the field equations from first principles. They're saying all sorts of things that are very simply not true by comparing something to another thing. Yeah, I would, I, I would very much say that incredibly few people actually have any knowledge or understanding of general relativity at all. A lot of arm-waving going on, simply because they haven't done the math. If you do the math, it's what I would call elegant, okay? It is an elegant, uh, beautiful solution that is, I would say, is a closed system. It's mathematically a closed system. It, like it, it's consistent throughout. There's no loose ends. Basically, we. Oh, no, what do they call it? Basically, if you solve a set of differential, you solve it and it follows the Ronskin. Right. It, the Ronskin has been has been found, and it it, sol it, it solves the Ronskin, which means there's nothing left. In other words, the solution exists, and the solution is unique. So Einstein has taken gravity and electromagnetism and found a unique solution that exists. A solution that has existence and uniqueness. That makes a closed system. And Schrodinger has also found a unique solution to Schrodinger's equation. The solution exists and it's unique. What is remarkable and what is an absolute miracle is that the, the, these unique solutions actually fit observation. That's a miracle. 
we have no idea why, but they do. That's what you have said with your statement that the mathematics is the blueprint of the universe. That's a remarkable statement because that now starts to make sense that there is a blueprint to the universe and that blueprint is mathematics. That makes total sense. So what then is the relationship between or Schrodinger's equation and Einstein's equation and how is that related to physical truth? Okay, well, Einstein's, Einstein's equations are an equation that deal with the continuum, with empty space. Not minute, just empty space in the coordinate system, no material. And so it's just uh, a vast expanse of empty space, and the equations are equations for a continuum, and we call it a continuum. Schrodinger's equation deals with bits and pieces. They deal with particles. The equation is a discrete equation dealing with sets of what we call eigenvalues. And these eigenvalues have to be orthogonal, and these are very discrete values of the eigenvalues that create the solution to Schrodinger's equation. These solutions describe things like photons, electrons, um, protons, very discrete things that we call particles. So the table made up of a mass of particles, but the table is set in empty space where there are things like gravitational fields, or we can pick up the table and huck it across the room and accelerate it, okay, within this empty space. So there's a relationship between the empty space bar and so on. What happens is somehow we have to get from this empty space to their being particles, and we should be able to unwind the particles and release them so that the particles then become empty space. So somehow empty space become particles and particles can become empty space. Mind you, there's curvature in it because, you know, of, of uh, curvature with the release of gravitational uh, waves uh, or release of, of things like uh, energy that it comes out in photons and, and um, uh, gamma rays and other things like that as we release these particles and particles, let's say, the, so the equivalence also says that mass is equal to energy. Okay, so there's a relationship between mass and energy. The energy is the description of the curvature of space and time from the Einstein tensor. The mass really comes into empty space being tied up into a knot to form a particle under certain conditions of a very great amount of curvature. So we take the empty space. It has a potential to it called psi. This psi is the potential of existence, and we curve it enough so if it's curved enough, it reaches the boundary condition in which psi equals one, in which case it forms a particle. And this particle has the properties of having what we would term as mass, as matter, and has electric charge because this is a property of empty space. So we manifest or crystallize material out of empty space having the properties of mass and charge. That's what we have. Now, if we describe truth and existence as being 
in some way the same thing. Okay, we look at existence. Existence is truth. It's made of truth. So this psi stuff is the potential of existence, which becomes real and is manifest in the world of existence as particles or subatomic particles and particles that create atoms, molecules, and so on, that is the stuff, if you like, of the universe. But there is a relationship between the stuff of the universe and the empty space, because the empty space is curved, okay? It's not flat space, it's actually curved. And the reason it's curved is because of all the stuff in the universe. So the stuff in the universe curves the space-time, and under certain conditions, if the space-time becomes curved enough, it will actually uh, create uh, material out of it through what do we call quantum fluctuations. It used to be known as pair production, but pair production, you know, it's, it's, we now call it quantum fluctuations in which we see particles manifesting themselves out of empty space. Mind you, it takes a honking mass of energy to be able to get that, but we see the creation of electrons and um, anti-electrons, uh, then they combine back together and annihilate each other into photons, basically a type of gamma ray and other things like that. You know, and this happens, and, and we observe this. We observe stuff coming out. And Schrodinger's equation predicts that. He predicts um, he predicts antimatter. Uh, antimatter is predicted in a ratio uh, so that the amount of antimatter compared to matter is about 14.3%, uh, which is observationally correct. Um, and we see the behavior of the Einstein equations or Einstein field equations. Everything is bang on the money. So what we're seeing is we now have a fairly solid mathematical basis. Uh, and this mathematical basis now comes into the point of objective reality. Okay, so this is why I say before, it's not something we perceive. This is objective reality. And we ourselves have this consciousness. Okay, and this consciousness becomes aware of this objective reality around it. That's now getting into being and nothing, and it's by Jean-Paul Sartre, which was just recently pointed out um, from a, a telegram thread that we've got going on this. Thank you very much for pointing that out. And now taking a look at it, we have, we have uh, this relationship of the individual uh, through the individual's existence, which is a form of consciousness, and taking a look at that interaction with the reality that happens to exist around this consciousness and to extend a little bit beyond being a nothingness, the extent of, of this consciousness is aware of uh, or, or perceives the world around it, which actually shows that the consciousness itself actually exists, which within existentialism says we exist, which with Sartre says that's an axiomatic approach. We exist, that's enough of that, let's go on. But also we see there's consequences of that because this existence, which is a form of consciousness, is aware and perceives the reality, which is actual fundamental reality according to what we have within the world of, 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 um, of both Schrodinger's equation and Einstein's equation that says this reality actually exists. Therefore, we as a consciousness perceiving this existence also actually exists, okay, which is the bouncing back and forth with which Sartre does. And uh, so as a result, then we go to this idea of truth, and we see that as we get further along, uh, we would say the truth, this psi, this potential of existence, means it's a potential to be able to be verified. Doesn't mean it has to be verified to exist, 
but it has the potential to be verified. And when we can actually verify it, when it has the property of being able to be verified, that's when we have existence, okay, that actually exists as material existence. And that material existence is formed out of the, out, out of the potential for verification, which actually is truth itself. We've got verification, truth, stuff. So truth actually exists and manifests itself into the world of existence, which is particles and us and stuff. Living in a world of empty space, and this empty space can manifest itself as reality, and that reality is truth. Physical truth. Physical truth, yes. That's what physical truth is. It's physical reality. So I think that I may have kind of figured something out. You have always been talking about how people don't under, like there's a lot of confusion around Schrodinger's equation and Einstein's equation because people don't really get it because they seem to contradict each other. So therefore one of them must be wrong or there's a contradiction. And so they get, um, often not really respect, like I, I've heard from you, it seems as if a lot of people don't even really respect a lot of Einstein's work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Be, because there's this, con is it because of this contradiction? Yeah. Yes, yes. So you're saying then that yes, there is a contradiction, not really a contradiction, but they're, they're discussing two different things. But those two different things can actually enhance each other or can can interact and work together mm -hmm. that there is no contradiction they're just describing different, different, space. dif different spaces thank you for helping me with the words yeah there's a boundary condition between the spaces. okay so yeah so is that right have i kind yes, of yes yes keep going there's a boundary condition one do you understand what i'm saying the, the different spaces one's the world of the very small yeah. the other's the world of yeah. the yeah but that's not necessarily a contradiction, and it doesn't cause a problem for you. It actually makes sense to you. Yeah. Continues on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when when I was trying to explain this to you, you were explaining to me why that, how that worked. Could okay. You it's, just in, in a, in a it? it's in a situation called boundary conditions. So we have an equation to describe things. We call this a differential equation. How things change in a particular space. Call that a differential equation, okay? Because differences, right? Now it changes. Um, that space has a boundary condition. It may be at infinity, but that's a boundary condition at infinity. Or there's a boundary condition at a certain discrete distance. Uh, outside of that boundary condition, we forget the differential equation, we don't deal with that equation anymore. We may have a totally different differential equation in a different space, but there's a boundary condition between them. So within one particular boundary condition, the world of the very, very small, we have Schrodinger's equation that describes discrete things and makes particles. People sometimes believe that there's no boundary condition to Schrodinger's equation, which is nuts. goes against Green's theorem and all sorts of other things. No, there's a boundary condition to Schrodinger's equation, which Schrodinger actually said in his paper. Please read his paper. All right? It says it right there. I am talking about boundary conditions are very small. Hence, I will make spatial dimensions imaginary and not real because of the solution to the differential equation, yada, yada, yada. 
but nobody reads the already equation, right? And they come up with all sorts of silly nonsense saying, oh, well, it's nonlinear, therefore we can't solve it. Uh, no. It's a linear equation. It's the diffusion equation with a linear term added onto it. It's not that hard to solve. You separate the variables, use the characteristic functions, yada, yada. Now the boundary condition drops out of it, which I did a couple of episodes ago. Einstein's equation, on the other hand, goes to the world of the infant. Now, later on, a guy by the name of Heisenberg comes along and he talks about, well, you can't measure things really, really small because you want to take a look at an electron under a microscope. You got to shine a light on it and the light bouncing off the electrons is going to mess up the electrons. You can't see where it is. That's Heisenberg. Uh, plain and simple. One of the most beautiful, elegant papers ever written. It is so simple. So he says there is a condition that says something's got to be big enough so you can understand it because basically the amount of distance you're looking at times its momentum is equal to Planck's constant. And in his paper, he said Planck's constant, not h bar, he said h, okay? And the other thing is the amount of energy you're looking at times the time window you're looking at is equal to Planck's constant, or it must be greater than that, you can't see it. Those happen to be the boundary conditions of Schrodinger's equation. So if you go smaller than those boundary conditions, you're dealing with a different differential equation. You're dealing with Schrodinger. <coughs> Excuse me. Schrodinger's equation does not cover infinite um, spaces. They cover a finite space. Hence, it is finite and a discrete form of mathematics. The Einstein field equations form a continuum because they go from this very, very small and discrete space that Schrodinger has described or that Heisenberg has described to the infinite, and that is a continuum of space forever. And that is described by continuum mathematics and differential equations that describe continuums. So there's no conflict between Schrodinger's equation and Einstein's equation. So you hit, you hit a bang on the money, and I'm, I'm sorry to have to go into such a uh, sort of mathematically basis and sort of thing to try and make sure that I'm, I'm saying it correctly. But yeah, it's a boundary condition. There's two different spaces. It's a boundary condition. One we could call Schrodinger space, the other one we could call Einstein space. And that's, you know, there's a boundary condition between them. And the boundary condition happens to be Heisenberg, which to me makes absolute, total, complete sense. I don't know what all the, all the fuss is about. Chapter 8. The field equations. Consider an equation which partially comes from Minkowski and also quoted by Einstein. That's reference 10. It's equation 8.1. G mu nu equals 8 pi bracket T mu nu minus F mu alpha F mu alpha alpha is raised plus 1 quarter g mu nu, g is lowercase, f lower alpha beta, f upper alpha beta, n bracket. From equation 8.1, we denote t mu nu as a material stress energy tensor, and the Faraday tensor terms as a field stress energy tensor. We can see that if there is no charge present, we have the formula g mu nu equals 8 pi t mu nu, equation 8.2, and we have the usual Einstein field equation. Should there be no mass but charges present, we have g mu nu equals 8 pi 
left bracket, minus F mu alpha, F nu alpha, where alpha is raised, plus one quarter, G mu nu, F alpha beta, alpha beta is lower, F alpha beta, alpha beta is raised, end bracket equation 8.3. Equation 8.1 is the complete field equations resulting from the presence of both mass and charge in boundless space. Equation 15.6 is a gravitational field equation. 8.3 describes space-time under Maxwell's equations. Note that it was probably Minkowski who developed the tensor equation for Maxwell's electromagnetic theory, and Einstein developed the tensor equation for gravity. For the sake of clarity, allow omega mu nu to equal 8 pi left bracket minus f mu alpha f nu alpha alpha raised plus 1 quarter g mu nu f alpha beta lowered f alpha beta alpha beta raised right square right bracket equation 8.4 and oh, it looks like something like egrec or something anyway egrec uh, mu nu equal 8 pi t mu nu 8.5 so we have g mu nu equals y mu nu plus omega mu nu which is 8.6 and consider the following situation footnote number one number one i would like to call y mu nu the hawking tensor and omega mu nu the israel tensor that way the unified field theory without quantum mechanics can simply be expressed as einstein equals Hawking plus Israel. It has a nice historical ring to it. End footnote. In the case of a photon passing by the sun, the mass of the sun yields the material stress energy tensor already described. The fluctuations of the electromagnetic fields from the photon have to be derived from equation 8.1. The omega mu nu tensor is a microscopic view of the actions of a stationary object having electrostatic charge of magnetic properties. However, to describe the photon itself from these equations, we need to take a macroscopic average of the stress energy tensor generated by the mu nu tensor. A photon is a region of rapidly fluctuating electric and magnetic fields moving at the speed of light. Overall, there is a stress energy tensor within the region of the photon in which g mu nu equals rho l mu l nu equation 8.7, where rho is the energy density, or h nu per unit volume of the photon, and l is the four velocity of the particle of light known as a photon. In this way, it can be seen that the bundle of rapidly fluctuating electric and magnetic fields appears to behave on a macroscopic level as a particle having mass and momentum. Therefore, if the appropriate differentiation is applied to the tensors describing a wave bundle moving at the speed of light, its energy can be derived from equation 8.1, which must be equal to h nu. In this way, Planck's constant enters the field equations. We know that g mu nu describes the curvature of a local region, in this case the local region of a photon. The zero-zero component is the localized energy density. Momentum, pressure, 
and shear stress densities are also contained in the Einstein tensor, that is, G mean U, which has been well known for nearly a hundred years. In this way, the local energy and momentum densities of a localized region of space-time undergoing rapid fluctuations of electric and magnetic fields and moving at the speed of light can be calculated from well-understood mathematical principles and procedures. Obviously, from equation 8.1, the energy and momentum of a photon can be obtained. The photon has momentum. As the photon travels deeper into the gravitational well of the Sun, we see that the energy of the photon increases, it blue shifts. As the photon bypasses the Sun and climbs back out of the gravitational well, it redshifts. In the reference frame of the Sun, assuming the Sun's position is unaffected, the redshift equals the blue shift as the photon follows the geodesic described by the gravitational field of the Sun. However, there is one small problem with his approach. We are working in the reference frame of the Sun. We are assuming the Sun is not moving in our laboratory universe, having only the Sun and a particular photon. If such were the case, the Sun being treated as an inertial reference frame, then there would be no resultant redshift of the photon bypassing the Sun. But such is not the case. The photon has momentum. We must take this into consideration. We must move to an inertial reference frame utilizing the total momentum of the Sun and photon. The total momentum of the Sun must remain, the t sorry, the total momentum of the system must remain constant. In this reference frame, there is a slight change in the photon's momentum due to its change in direction. This change in momentum must be subtracted from the sun's change in momentum so that the total momentum remains constant. This takes energy which comes from the photon, which red shifts to make up for the gain in kinetic energy of the sun. As a result, the bypassing of the photon causes the sun to vary slightly shift, which in turn alters the region of the photon's local value of g mu nu, and thereby the value of rho l mu, l nu, for the photon. We see that the slope of the gravitational well is not the same as when the photon exits the well of the sun as when it enters it. This is because the sun very slightly shifts toward the photon as it passes. The well is steeper coming out of it than when entering it. General relativity meets quantum mechanics. Since the Faraday tensors describing the local space-time of a photon affect g mu nu, a photon therefore adds to the curvature of local space-time and therefore interacts gravitationally with local objects, however, extremely slightly. We can figure out the redshift of the photon by treating the interaction as a collision using Planck's formula, or we can figure it out with momentum considerations from rather difficult and complex operations and differentiations on the photons quickly moving locally and interaction 
it has in changing the sun's momentum. There are two ways to solve the problem, and both should be equal. Furthermore, we can also see the derivation of the very slight redshift of light bypassing the sun has been approximated as linear. Over great distances and with very large masses, this effect becomes more pronounced and nonlinear. There is a cosine factor involved which comes into play. The more and more the light is, quote, bent, end quote. At great distances, this would not behave as a linear function and may well match the observations that have formed the basis of an inflationary universe. Any determination considering the expand, an expanding universe must take into account the red shifting of light passing through gravitational fields. We next work out the redshift using the approach of a collision. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked what you heard, you may subscribe in your podcast provider and perhaps share in various social media sites. Bruce has promised he won't change the links anymore and screw up trying to find the next episode. Please enjoy the rest of your day and may everything work out for the best. We try to have a new podcast every Saturday, so see you next week.